Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. training. I invoke sacred ground. Give thanks to Saga for the inspirations that you offer to Saga Craft and to us. And I'm very grateful for this thin time of the year, for all that this thin time has to offer. The thin time offers opportunity for ghosts to be more present than usual, which can be a good thing or not a good thing, but it's always interesting. And I look forward to hearing your story, C. Thank you. I want to also thank everyone, and I think particularly ancestors, not, well, I'm not going to exclude physical ancestors, but also all the people from the past, since I've written about some of them. It's Halloween, 1978, and all my friends are coming over to get costumed up for the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I have noticed, but not contemplated, the fact that every house I've lived in has been haunted. One by one, my friends arrive in t-shirts and jeans, carrying bags of satin, sequins, feather boas, and theatrical makeup. Our only living room furniture is a single reclining chair that resembles an upholstered boat on a sea of orange and brown. In my memory, it bobs as if drifting on the waves of shag carpet under the sun of a bizarrely placed chandelier. In my mind, my brother is always in the chair, and I wonder if, in his, I am. My best friend has brought in our single stool and is sitting on it, painting the white pumps she just brought at the Salvation Army black. I loved her then. I wonder if some part of me always will. I will call her Daphne, because it is so wrong. My neighbor, Ted, is there. I'm assigning him that name because years later, when I see Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted, I will think that's who Ted would have been if he hadn't been so damaged. Daphne, who is stunningly attractive in that Nordic way, has an unfortunate crush on Ted, who is gay. The boy I have a crush on will be meeting us at the theater. Thank God he isn't going to see my house. There are three or four others there, but they are hazy in my memory with soft, malleable features, faded like ghosts. I wish them well as I wonder how they became a backdrop in my life. My mom, who rarely visits the house, has heard that my friends are coming over, so is making her sole attempt at being parental. She offers dates stuffed with peanut butter because that's what 70s teenagers want, in her mind. There's a round of declines, then she scuttles back to her room to hide until they've gone and she can flee the house again. 
After a few requests for things I don't own, like mirrors and chairs, the conversation turns to Halloween. I love ghosts, I say, and as I do so, the chandelier begins to flash on and off. How did you do that? Ted asks. What? I said. Make the lights flash. Ghosts? I say, and the lights flash again. Ted starts to look around. When I walk around at night, the street lights turn off, Daphne remarks. Ted looks distressed. It's true, I verify, every time, just like me and ghosts, I add, and the chandelier flashes again. Ted has begun to look like a caged animal as he searches the room visually. How did you do it? He asks, his voice raising in pitch. Really, I say, I just said ghost. The chandelier confirms. I didn't do anything. It's like me with the street lights, right? She frizzed out her white blonde hair and she has her foot in now black pumps on the stool, displaying the inside of her bare and very long leg as she applies bright red lipstick and kisses the air for coverage. Yeah, I agree. Wires, Ted concludes, his eyes first starting about then focusing on a place where the chandelier meets the ceiling. Where are the wires? Every time, Daphne continues, it's such a pain to always have to walk in the dark because streetlights just won't stay on. She rolls her eyes before checking to see the impression she's made on Ted. Nothing. He's busy walking around the edges of the room now, checking for switches. They have to be here, he murmurs, as the translucent friends who have escaped the concrete of my memory encourage him to let it go. Do it again, he commands me and stares as if he can see through me. Ghost, I say to flickering lights. Daphne rolls her eyes, sighs, and puts both feet on the floor, deflated, then hawks and spits on the floor as my mom returns, having worked up the courage to offer more peanut butter dates. Someone says, Daphne. I'm sorry, she responds, blushing as my mom looks on in distress. Ted runs over to me and begins to fondle the thick shag by my feet, following some invisible line he has willed into being to the wall, where he begins to pry up the carpet. My mom watches for a moment, faltering, hoping he will stop. When he does not, and a few inches have been peeled back, she clears her throat before tentatively suggesting, please don't rip up the carpet, this is a rental. Ted seizes the carpet uninstall and begins to feel around the baseboards as the final touches of makeup go on the rope. There has to be a wire, he exclaims. But you don't have to find it. A voice comes from behind the veil. Reluctantly, he abandons his mission and we all pile into the station wagon where, I think, for the very first time, that it is not my house that is haunted. I really want to be part of this entourage going out to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I know. I feel like I have been part of that entourage. So that was a great memory. Thank you. It's a great story. And I love that the ghost is present as a ghost of unknown origin, but also that all the people in it are somewhat ghosts because... It's a memory of what happened, yet everything's a little shifted and it's like a snapshot in time, which often ghosts capture that. They appear as snapshots in time. Right. They were alive to me then. That was what was notable to me writing it. They were so alive to me then, but they're not anymore. They faded. They have faded just like a ghost. 
I don't even know their names anymore. I don't know the features on their faces. But once they really mattered to me. So what is that about the streetlights going off? <laughs> it really did happen. Every time she walked under a streetlight, it went off. I don't know why. <laughs> it was just like me and ghosts. Yeah, I don't know. She had a streetlight thing. <laughs> I think we've all had that friend. I'm not the person that the lights happen with. But I've had a friend or two in my life that it really did happen. I've had it happen for me when I was a certain age. And then with a certain friend, it happened a lot. We speculated that we were light so that the street light didn't need to be on. But that was also just a hope, I think, too. <laughs> Who knows? Hmm. Well, I love your characterization of everyone in the story. And even the ghost, I like that very much. I wonder if the mom is a ghost and how nice she is to the kids. I cannot imagine my mother being that nice to kids. Everyone terrifies my mom. It was surprising that she came out of her room. The thing about some kind of an event like that is that it's a confluence so often of the particular energies that host or allow those kinds of events to occur too. Sometimes they're for everyone, but sometimes they're maybe just for one person or another. But in this instance, I could just feel all those forces and all those personalities and energies coming together. So you did a great job of conveying that. Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed this story. It made me smile. And it really honored this time of the year and just the excitement that Halloween or Samhain brings of like-minded people seeking adventure and mystery. Mm -hmm. And the fun of being able to, for a night, present yourself as something completely different or reveal something different about yourself, which really maybe got a chance to happen here. I oddly think that that was a gift of Rocky Horror. Indeed. Don't dream it, be it. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll go next. Thank you, Betsy. Mine takes place a little bit later than Samhain in the year, but still in the dark time of the year. Lila, homeless for longer than she could remember, walked through the city neighborhood in search of something nourishing. The raw December wind blew trash and a few snowflakes in swirls around her. She could smell the snow on its way. She felt empty, unbothered by the cold, lost in her thoughts and yet somehow hopeful. Sometimes in her travels, she had the sensation of walking towards something important, yet nearly forgotten. She felt that way now. The icy wind sweeping up from the Thames buffeted Lila as she trailed a group of well-dressed Londoners. Chattering amongst themselves, they headed towards a large hotel complex from which complicated culinary scents emerged. The cold night and the brisk wind sharpened her faculty of smell. Inexplicably, because the hotel appeared very English, scents from her own country were emanating out into the night. She imagined them wafting out of the hotel restaurant like smoke from Aladdin's lamp. 
smiling an ironic little smile at the thought of the lamp. Following an unexplainable urge, Lila followed the group into the hotel and out of the wind. She entered the foyer of the hotel. The ceilings were high and arched, the beige carpet thick beneath her feet. The immediate feeling of warmth was a little stunning, causing her to pause, looking around. In this way, she found herself in the middle of a small group of people flowing around her and heading towards a banqueting room. An anticipatory throng of people waited to be let through the doorway into the banquet hall. She let herself be part of the group, carried along with them into the dimly lit room, much larger than a restaurant. A maitre d' was directing people to large round tables draped in white linen. Moving waiters, uniformed in black and white, guided her and the small group she lingered near to a table midway back. Whenever any one of the small group looked in her direction, she smiled shyly. Half concealing her face, she adjusted her long scarf over her hair, straightened her back, sliding from the unseen to the seen, allowing her movements to become graceful, subtly proud. Around her, people were dressed for an evening of entertainment and food. The women in flashy sequined or silky evening wear and the men more somber, but smelling strongly of cologne. She subtly shifted herself again. Her headscarf now gleamed with metallic threads. She laughed internally. If she smelled unclean, she knew the strong cologne would cover it up. In front of the room was a raised stage set up for a large band of some sort. There were no chairs, merely cushions and an array of instruments set up in front of microphones. There was to be entertainment. This promised to be a better evening than she anticipated. The room filled and waiters moved around with trays of drinks and bottles of wine. Accepting a glass of crisp white wine, she enjoyed the scent but left it untasted. A large group of musicians and singers entered the room, all dressed in white, except the apparently revered lead singer. As the short, older, and stout man in a long, dark gray coat entered, the majority of the people in the room rose, honoring him. A group of black-haired men in evening dress helped him solicitously to his seat on the stage. Musicians rearranged the tablas and harmoniums to suit themselves, like a flock of birds fluttering into their natural pecking order. The pattern they eventually settled into seemed to be one of long establishment. An MC stood between the guests and the stage, asking for a warm welcome for Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan and spoke briefly about this well-known singer achieving the pinnacle of Kowali a form of Sufi Islamic devotional music. He spoke in both Urdu and English. Mr. Khan had won an award for his music. A notoriously bad boy of rock music was invited up to present the award. This man in suit jacket and brocaded vest came nimbly to the stage and offered the golden album disc to the older man. Accepting it gracefully, 
The Kuali singer clasped it briefly to his heart and then passed it off to another. Closing his eyes in prayer, he nodded to his group and the music began. Soon the entire room was clapping, swaying, and layer upon layer of voices were singing the ancient songs of spiritual poets. Lila looked around the room, noting an international array of guests from the Northern Indian subcontinent, as well as many Londoners born and bred. She noticed to her side, just out of reach for her to look comfortably, a beautiful young man with dark lashed soulful eyes, not a Londoner. When she dared, she looked again at him, noting the waving black hair, the lithe body less like a dancer and more like a tiger, though he sat swaying in time to the music as gracefully as a gazelle. He caught her looking at him and smiled, showing sharp teeth, his eyes glinting orange for a second before restoring to a melting chocolate brown. When the lead singer began to sing, something indefinable shifted in the music. Rollicking, merry, and joyful before, now pathos and something akin to a halo of light entered into the song. As the names of saints were invoked and prayers sung, Lila saw spirals of light forming on the stage. No one else seemed to be aware of them. Well, except the beautiful young man. He was caught, just as she was, by what was trying to form, by what was emerging out of the swaying singers and the passionate voice of the lead singer. The music invoked the saint whose prayer this was, Amir Kusrao. It called up the saint who reworked the prayer centuries later, Bula Shah. The layers within the music were complex, and so were her memories. Amir, Amir, she thought. I wanted you to save me, but you were caught up in this prayer for which you are now long remembered. The spiral of light on the stage before her was building, forming, her gaze was pulled to the young man. His mouth was open, his eyes were closed, listening, body taut against the palpable and magnetic pull of the sentiment and the melody of the music. What appeared to be a grimace was forming on his face. Another soundtrack could be heard in the room. Where was it coming from? Jin, Jin, your power is useless here laughter and insidious grace. I'm not so sure about that. The gin was inciting desire now in the room. Dancing couples caught the edge of that desire and began to dance more sensually with each other to the hissing of older Indian women trying to school their sons. The son danced with sex, guilt, and the divine inextricably tied together. The intently listening rock star known for getting no satisfaction, felt that very dissatisfaction mounting within him, hearing the ecstatic vocals and feeling the sensation of gateways opening in the room. How do you do that, he thought. Will I ever be able to do that? The participants who were focused on him were swept along with his frustration. The rock star's model wife, untouchable in her beauty, 
incited the jealousy of the young and older women in the crowd. The tension in the room mounted as the singer wailed, his voice allowing Amir to become more fully present. Lila felt pinned, exposed, frightened, and joyful all at once. She felt the bonds that had been deep within her revealed now and shining dully in the spectral and liminal light. Release me, never was the reply. The eyes of the Kuali singer were open but unfocused, so lost was he in the prayer he was singing. Standing on him, anchored in him, was Amir. The words he sang came from the singer's mouth but from the saint's heart. Lila, come to me, commanded Amir. Can I? she asked breathless. Oh yes. Spirals of light reached for her, coiled around her. The spectral light reached for her too. If never, then with me forever, she cried with her mind, not trying to slip out of the jinn's bindings, but wrapping them more completely around her. Amir cried, beloved, and pulled her to him. The jinn flew forwards from the back of the room, and the second portal, held by Bullah Shah, opened for the jinn. The crowd roared as they were taken up by the mounting ecstasy as the singer's voice spiraled higher. Amir, she cried as she went into his arms. Beloved, cried Amir. Beloved, cried Bullah Shah as the graceful jinn flew into his arms, threw him, and was gone. Can we hear more, please? <laughs> that was amazing. That was absolutely profound and full of magic and full of liberation. It was a liberation love ghost story. And beauty. There was a lot of beauty in that for me, as well as a feeling of fatedness. Yeah, the sense of Lila's travels through time and across continents to this moment were very much a part of it for me. But the question is, who are the ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's certainly more than one. Well, and at least to me, their intent is still shrouded, if not hidden. Well, it makes me wonder if the living and possibly the dead who witnessed that event, if it was not their time to go, if they had set in their mind the level at which they would agree to go, that would be as beautiful as this one. Mm. And I love the, the multi-layered presence of the saint and the devotee who by rewriting the song or infusing the song with his own devotion brought another strength in it so another portal could be opened. I think that was just brilliant. Thank you. What was it like for you, Betsy, to spend this time with Lila, but also with the saints and the power of those songs? I've always particularly loved this song, and the story was inspired by a video that one can see on YouTube. And some of the players that I mentioned in the story were definitely on the scene. But to be with Lila was very interesting because there was power with her. There was 
irony with her. There was sort of uh, being acclimated to her fate was the sense of it, but also almost a world weariness about even when she felt that feeling like something important was going to happen, she would go with it. But it felt like this journey had been so long for her that it was hard for her to even invest in it. And so what it felt in this banqueting hall, that there was just a very favorable confluence of events that occurred that required a lot to come together and makes me want to know more of her story. But I'm also happy for her release as well. I think that was conveyed beautifully the way it was set up from the beginning, just her sense of feeling lost and feeling thrown away and forgotten. And when that smell opened up, it's almost like it just drew her to her own destiny. Her reluctance was not important because it was already on its way. I think that's very true. I liked the gin also. I like the gin also, too. He was probably my favorite. I'm happy he was there as well. I feel like the dimension he gave and offered to that world and all the people in it living and beyond, I think he just added a, a spice that was really needed, without which maybe none of this could have happened. No, it's probably very true. Again, that sort of all these different threads coming together and also very much the power of the saints and the power of the singer and that ability to take things up into those ecstatic spirals. At the same time, all this other, you know, it's inciting all these other things within people. And that, that's very enjoyable <laughs> in some way. Right, because those are the things that if they are hidden in any way under certain circumstances, they just come out. They overwhelm, they overpower, and they make their own way to the horror of whoever they're coming out of. <laughs> or later, maybe, but in the moment, they must. They must be free. Well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you. That was lovely. My story is a little different. And this is one of the many ghost stories that I grew up with. It's more of a love story from a long time ago from the beautiful town of Niedzica on Lake Gorszten in Poland near the Czech border. When I was five, my family and I went to that region. We took a boat ride along the Dujanic River and the river guide shared this legend with us. And me being the ghost-loving child, I still remember that journey, that trip, and this story. A long, long time ago, there lived a handsome prince named Boguslav, who was the heir of Niedzica Castle. Niedzica is a town located in the southeast of Poland that sits on top of a cliff overlooking Czorsztyn Lake, surrounded by Pianina Mountains. Prince Boguslav ruled fairly and with kindness. He took care of his people and they honored and loved him in return. But the love of his people was not enough for him and he felt lonely, 
longing for partnership and his own family. He decided it was time to find a wife that could rule by his side and overlook the beautiful land. He set out to travel to nearby countries in search of a bride. While in Germany, he was a guest at a ball where he met the young and beautiful princess Brunhilde. He fell in love with her immediately. They danced for the whole night and they spent the next few days together, deepening their connection. The prince felt that he couldn't spend another day without the beautiful Brunhilde and asked her parents for her hand in marriage. They saw how their daughter looked at the handsome prince, feeling just as in love with him as he was with her, and they agreed to the marriage. Boguslav and Brunhilde departed Germany and headed for Poland to get married. The wedding was a fabulous and festive affair. Guests from many countries attended with gifts and good wishes for the young couple. They admired the glamorous Brunhilde in her fine gowns and jewelry, her graceful dancing, and her generous laughter. Prince Boguslav glowed with pride and love for his new wife, looking forward to many, many years together. Brunhilde fell in love with the remote mountain land, the lake, and the people. She and Boguslav spent hours walking around the castle through the lush gardens or riding horses hunting with hawks through the wild landscape. The peasants and servants loved their new princess and thought that she and Boguslav were made for each other. She loved them as well and encouraged him, the prince, to pay them more. So they worked more, could buy more sheep, tend to the fields and gardens better. And in turn, the whole kingdom lived in great health and abundance for a long time. After some time, Brunhilde, who was used to large cities, night tournaments, and parties, started to grow a little restless. She had elegant gowns and jewelry, but with no events and fancy balls to attend to, she had no reason to wear them. She pleaded with Boguslav to throw a party, or better, a night tournament with a huge ball afterwards with dancing. Dear wife, we cannot allow such an event. There's simply not enough room here at Nyedica Castle for knights and horses and all the guests. Don't you like our life here in the mountains? It's so peaceful and spacious, the prince reasoned. But I'm bored and I want different kinds of adventures and guests and dancing. I have so many beautiful gowns and jewels, gifts from our wedding, and nowhere to wear them. Who am I supposed to wear them for? The servants? The princess argued. Come, Brumhilda, you are being vain, Boguslav said, maybe unfairly, worried that his love for her might not be enough all of a sudden. He didn't understand why parties and dresses were so important to her. His whole kingdom was hers. Why wasn't that enough? But the princess grew more and more restless and felt that Boguslav didn't understand her. She wasn't vain. She was a princess, young and beautiful. One day she would grow old and her dresses might not fit anymore, or her shoes. What a waste, she thought sadly. She started to complain more and more about her life, about the castle, the servants, and the food. She even made the cook flee the castle because the poor woman couldn't keep up with the extravagant demands of the princess. Daily fights became common for the couple. Yelling, escalating, name-calling even. The servants grew scared. So much turmoil at Nyedica Castle. They couldn't recognize what had become of the kind Boguslav and the laughter-loving Brunhilde. They longed for the good old days. One night, 
Brunhilda saw a mouse in her quarters. She panicked and jumped up onto the table near the window and started yelling at the top of her lungs. Mouse! Mouse! These filthy creatures are everywhere in this dirty castle, she shouted. Alarmed by the shouting, Boguswab ran into her chambers to see what was going on. Realizing that she had made all this commotion over a mouse, he tried to reason with her impatiently. Wife, mice are common in all castles. Don't make such a fuss. You scared me, he said. In frustration and rage, Brunhilda threw one of her expensive perfume bottles at her husband and came at him with fists raised, beating him in the chest. This was too much, Boguswab thought, and enraged. He grabbed her by her raised fist and pushed her back to stop her from beating him further. When he pushed her, she stumbled backwards towards the open window as he watched in horror. She lost her balance and fell out of the window, falling down, down, down into the old well that was built long ago right under the castle wall. Boguswa stood frozen in place, unable to speak or cry or shout. After a moment of shock, he came to his senses and ran as fast as he could to get help to rescue the princess from the well. He and the servants worked vigorously all night long, draining the well, calling, looking for the unfortunate princess, but to no success. She was forever lost in the deep water below. Her body was never recovered. All of Boguslav's cries for Brunhilda into the depths of the well were only met with the echo of his own voice meeting the wet stone and water below. The prince, along with the whole town, was crushed with grief. What a tragedy, what a loss. Boguswef grew weak and weary. He wouldn't eat. He wandered around the castle at night and around the well like a ghost. He could not forgive himself for what happened. His heart was forever broken. One night, as he was sitting at the well, his head leaning against the cold stones of the opening, he called out sobbing. Forgive me, my dear Brunhilda, forgive me. And from the depths of the well, the princess's voice was heard. I forgive you, Boguslav. I forgive you, Boguslav, the bald. The prince, deeply relieved by his wife's forgiveness, went to bed and fell into a restful sleep for the first time since the terrible accident. As he was falling asleep, though, he wondered why his wife would refer to him as Boguslav, the bald. So strange, he had such thick, long black hair. Why would she call him that? He must have misheard her. The answer to his pondering, however, came to light at dawn. For when he woke up, he had no hair left on his head. From that day on, he was known as Prince Boguslav the Bald. The Nijitsa Castle stands to this day, surrounded by mountains and a beautiful lake. The elders say that some nights when the moon is full, you can see Brunhilda and Boguslav walking hand in hand around the grounds, bonded for eternity in love and forgiveness. The well still stands too. When spouses hurt each other or hide an unfortunate secret, they go to the well to confess of their mistakes and ask for forgiveness. They always receive forgiveness but most of them wake up at dawn with no hair on their heads. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I love the baldness.
just to be clear, I don't want baldness, but that's fantastic. <laughs> and people must really want forgiveness if they're willing to accept the baldness. <laughs> Indeed. I changed the story a little bit because I didn't want, it's mostly men that ask for this forgiveness, but you know, I didn't want to uh, make that a point. So I wanted whoever, whoever it is, but I think Brunhilde had a certain favoring or disfavoring of who came at the well, who, who came over to the well. What kind of an effect did that have on you when you were a child? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And uh, it's a popular story. One of the more well-known legends, ghost stories from that region. So most kids will yell that out, you know, at night to each other. Forgive me, Brunhilde. It's this thing that people would do that was associated with ghosts and, and betrayal and love. And was that the only kind of penance that she exacted from him? Or are there stories of other things that she imposed on him? I think one of the versions is that he goes mad with grief and kills himself. And then he haunts the castle because that castle people visit and, and nearby it's a tourist attraction. So the story is that he's seen in the castle looking for her, that he's never found her. So there are different versions. Depending on Brunhilde's mood, there are different versions to the story of whether she forgives him or not. Maybe she, who knows, who else he did in the afterlife? Who else, you know, who knows what, what else happened? So uh, she may be mad at him for something. The mood of the teller, I imagine, plays a big part. <laughs> yeah. I would think so. Yes, definitely. More than anything, what I remember about that story is not just that story, but I remember taking that that ride in the boat with the Highlander type guide. And he just had a giant stick that he just, huge, huge stick that he pushed the boat with as we all kind of sat and stood in it. And we're going through this really mountainous region. It's beautiful. And there are faces in the mountains. I mean, they look like faces. And he was telling us that story, but he was also telling us a story about the kings of the mountain. And that really made an impression of me, just the wind and how powerful it was and all the stories the people told from that region about the spirits of the place. I even wondered, I even had to call my mother today and ask if, because I remembered that story so vividly, I had to even remember how old I was because I remember it so vividly. And I feel like some parts of it I might've made up, but it's stuck with me like a, like a ghost, like a haunting, but a good one. Hauntings can be good. I feel beautifully haunted by the story and by that river. And had you remembered it pretty accurately? Yes. Yes. It's a very fun story. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really liked it too. I really liked the portrayal of the princess as such a very real young woman. Yeah, I can certainly sympathize with her and any princess or any woman that swept off her feet by love, by chemistry with a handsome prince or a handsome man would say yes and be happy to leave her home, not realizing what that means until everything settles into the new life and 
she's grieving the life she lost that she'll never have again. It makes me think of whether or not the mothers prepared their daughters for that. Probably some did and maybe some didn't. That's a whole different kind of ghost, the ghost of who we used to be. Exactly. That's who she used to be. I found myself wondering as you were telling the story, especially if it was an older castle, if some of her disaffection that she was feeling, her dissatisfaction came from other ghosts who were influencing her too. And in fact, I really wasn't sure which direction that it was going to go, but I, I felt as though that was a strong possibility in some way that she became maybe possibly in some way not fully herself. I think that's absolutely true. That did not occur to me, but yes. And it, it is a very old castle. I believe it's from 1100. It's very old. It also makes me wonder about the nature of the well. And to think that that would be a great thing for us to do some stories on additionally would be wells. Indeed. In terms of overarching, I have to say, you know, with the theme of ghosts, I've been so shocked that we all have very relationship-heavy stories. So that makes me ponder if ghosts only exist in relationship. Is there a ghost without or not a ghost in the room? That is an excellent pondering, and I don't know if there is. And if there is, probably not as obvious as the ones that are bound by relationship and longing or loss of relationship and longing. But what a tie guilt makes with the dead. Yes, a tie, a hold, mm -hmm. an anchor, and revenge too. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I loved, I think, most about it was the fact that it's such a ludicrous revenge. It's a, it is revenge, but at the same time, it is forgiveness. Right. It's sort of a backhanded <laughs> forgiveness. Right. Well, and he called her vain. Yeah, it's quite the perfect revenge for someone who was perhaps a little vain. But having been called vain, she got him where it hurts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think she's pretty ingenious. Yeah, it's excellent. I know. I mean, I was fully anticipating that there were going to be more things that she imposed on him, and that would be a good continuation of what it takes for her to really fully forgive him. I like that often ghosts or the dead have a really strong sense of judgment and law and exchange and payment, oh. that there is a balance that's achieved at the end, whenever the end might be. Yeah, it's quite easy to believe in the other story that he's haunting the place too. And maybe they're all true. Mm -hmm. How is it to be with that story, that story from your childhood? It was really nice. It was comforting. As the child who loved ghosts. As the child who loved ghosts, yes. And this would have been one of these ghosts that I wouldn't be really scared of. The princess ghosts just were in a scary, they were such a part of the landscape. The castle ghosts were such protectors in some way of castles and land that it felt like 
you know, if you're a good person, they wouldn't hurt you. Once again, that layer of them being the judge or the executioner and sometimes somebody who would protect the innocent. So I felt very comforted by that, even as a child with some of these lady ghosts, a princess queen ghosts. It's a whole genre of ghosts that I never really took into account. So thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you, ghosts. Yeah. May you all find what you're seeking. And in the meantime, enjoy enlivening the landscapes that you're in. And having whatever kind of messages you do for those living humans that you encounter. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.